0: Hello, my love. Welcome back to the C Word podcast or welcome to the C Word podcast. I don't want to presume that you've listened before. This might be your very first episode. And if it is, thank you so, so much for joining me, for lending me your ears. Now, I do like to have a good old overthink sometimes. (laughs) I am guilty of an overthink, but I don't always think it's a negative thing. I sometimes think it's quite helpful to reflect and to give yourself some space and some time to think about things that are important to you or to gather up your learnings or your reflections and process them in some ways. And one of the things I often reflect on is what would I do now if I was starting my brand design business from scratch? So I've been in this business now, look, it has to be eight, maybe nine years. And the reason I'm so unclear on that is because there was a, a really kind of soft landing period where I started my business, but I was really freelancing as a designer. I'd had my babies or my first baby, and I was just doing bits and pieces. And so there was never really a clear point where I perhaps said, right, this is me. I am now running a business. But I would say that that's eight, nine years now that I have been doing this which is quite a long time and I actually think that a huge amount has changed in that nearly decade. When I first started out, people were really focusing on Facebook as the main social media platform. Instagram probably didn't even exist at that point, I don't think. So a huge amount has changed. Everything about online advertising has changed, but also there are some things that have stayed the same around the quality of service that makes a big difference to our business, and the quality of product that we want to create as designers and creatives. So hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? And I wouldn't change really anything about my business. I certainly wouldn't change everything about what I've done. But there are some things I might do differently, or perhaps do more of now, knowing that in the current climate, they would probably give me traction quicker. And I say in the current climate because what I did eight or nine years ago would have been relevant then, but now things have changed. So I do like to think, well, if I was starting from scratch now, what would I do? And I am realistic with these things, by the way. I'm not saying I would now go and invest $100,000 in a business coach or tens of thousands in online advertising. That's obviously not what I would do. If I was starting out, I wouldn't have the cash flow to do that. I think in realistic terms, if I really was doing this again, what would I do? And I wanted to share my top 10 thoughts on this with you because the list got long, but I wanted to make it quite... Realistic and actionable and digestible. Because we've all got a lot on our plates, right? You know, everything's proving to be pretty busy in today's world, and 2023 is no different. But it's never too late to perhaps rethink things and maybe do things a little bit differently. So hopefully, you can get some inspiration and perhaps a little bit of focus in your own design business on what you could do. Right now, in this moment, and what might have the most impact today? Let's dive into it. My top 10. Okay, so this is in no particular order, although maybe there is a certain stepped process that I might follow. And the first thing that I would do if I was starting today, right here, with a clean sheet of paper the very first thing I would do is sit down and think about a simple, focused offer that is for a reasonably well-defined niche. In the early days, absolutely, it was tempting to just do a bit of everything. And I've spoken about it before, to have that long laundry list of all the things that I could do. Because when you've got creative skills, but when you've also worked in marketing and you've also worked in consultancy, there's a lot that you could do. But I saw a post even today on Instagram and it said, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And there is so, so much truth in that. So that's the first thing I would do. I would be super clear with myself on what I want to do and why that's important to me. And I would really push myself to start excluding things so that I create some really clear products and services for my audience. And I often talk about this too, that are very much outcome and value-led, not just that menu or that laundry list. So that's the first thing I would do. And I would also get really clear. You know, I, in my business, have gradually, and it wasn't a slow process, it actually happened reasonably quickly, decided that for me, my focus was on professional services businesses. It was where I had the most value to add. It's where I just had a lot of knowledge and a lot of expertise coming out of what I'd done in agency. So I quite quickly found that I had a strong niche there and I had a lot of value to add and I just seemed to attract that kind of client but I did still dabble around and do some e-commerce businesses and take on some things that weren't right for me. So I would much more quickly decide on who I was going to be for and develop my services for them and also exclude some things that I didn't really want to do. And I would also be really clear on how I described myself and what I do. I have often found that quite tricky. When someone says to me, Oh, what do you do, Beck?" I sort of stumble over it a bit and I find it really hard to articulate that or I have in the past. So I would spend some time getting really clear on that. Someone asked me recently at a networking event that I went to, oh, how do you describe yourself? What's your title? They were about to introduce me to someone else. And I very quickly said that I'm a brand creator and I'm also a coach to other creatives. And that was really clear for me, but I haven't always had that clarity or I'm a graphic designer, or I'm a brand designer. And those things didn't really, to me, fully describe what I did because a big part of what I do is the strategy piece. And being a brand designer or a graphic designer, to me, didn't capture those things. So that's my number one. Create a really simple, focused offer for a reasonably well-defined niche. So your niche can change, it can evolve having a starting point that you can evolve from rather than being all things to all people, I think is a good thing to do. Okay, number two, I would go hard on my website, but more so than my website, my SEO. So I probably didn't have a website straight away. What I had in the beginning was the sort of makings of an online portfolio. So my work was online and I sort of used Facebook as well as a bit of a digital go-to, digital footprint. But I did get on and do my website reasonably soon. But I didn't do anything around SEO until maybe, a, let's say two years ago, I started to actually think more intentionally and mindfully about SEO So that is the thing I would do now. I would create a robust website that was much more than my portfolio. And the reason I say that is because the first page that people visit after my homepage is either my about page or my services page. They don't visit my portfolio. My portfolio is not the most visited page on my website, not by a long shot. And it never really has been. And very rarely do people even ask me for it when I start to have discovery calls or engage with potential clients. So I think it's a really important learning. And this is a truth for me. I'm not saying it's a truth for everyone else, but the truth for me was I felt that a lot of creatives put a lot of effort into developing this beautifully crafted portfolio. It can be a huge undertaking and that becomes the lion's share of their website when actually what people really want from you is much more than that. They want to get to know about you as a person, and what you can do for them. So I would build that robust website, like I said, but I would really invest, and I don't necessarily mean invest financially, but I do think it's not a bad call, even if it's just doing some kind of course to educate yourself, but I would absolutely invest a good chunk of time into the SEO on that website. And building my content and building the performance of that website from an SEO point of view. And the reason I say that is because a lot of my business, I would say it's probably about third after referrals and people finding me on socials. No, in fact, I take that back. It's probably my second. So referrals is my first and SEO is my second source of approaches of new client contacts. So it's well worth the investment. So that's my number two, website and SEO. Number three, this is not going to be music to your ears necessarily. And it probably wasn't music to mine when the penny finally dropped. But I would absolutely, from day one, embrace my personal brand and focus on my visibility and becoming known, becoming recognized, becoming a go-to in the area that I wanted to be a go-to for. Because in the early days, I was very hidden. And I keep saying, actually, I'm going to do, maybe it's going to, maybe it should be a blog post because it's probably quite a visual thing. But maybe it's only for my own cathartic reasons. But I want to go through and share the different brand iterations that I have been through in my business because there's been a few. And for a big chunk of that time, I didn't use my name. There were no pictures of me and there was none of my backstory. I realise now, looking back at myself, in inverted commas, because it wasn't myself, that I was extremely hidden behind a brand. For the vast majority of my, let's say my non-personal branded history, I was white space and I didn't show myself at all. But the irony of that is that I did come to realize that I am and was, for the, all of that time, the main driver of my business, as, as in me as the person. So regardless of what brand name I used, people would always refer others to Beck Hughes. Oh, you can go and speak to Beck Hughes about that new brand. Oh, Beck Hughes builds websites. You need to go and talk to her. They wouldn't refer someone to Whitespace or any of the other brand names that I've hidden behind. And those brand names were the things that were visible, but people's connection was with me. And I missed that trick. And that's not to say that you can't have a brand and be a personal brand alongside that. What I'm saying is, I think there is so much value and you will gain a huge amount more traction or traction more quickly if you are the face and the human and the personality behind your brand. If people can see and connect with you And I know people say it ad nauseum, so sorry about that. But you know what? It's just the truth. People connect with people. Human to human, branding, marketing, so important. So I would really focus on bringing myself out from behind my work and my brand much, much more. And a big part of that would actually be to focus on my visibility and becoming known, like I said. So I would, from day one... And look, I'm sure there would have been as many yeses as there would be nos and you have to be okay with that. But I would look to extend my reach so much more through guesting, like guest webinars, guest podcasts, but also looking at PR and looking at opportunities to speak, even on a small scale. So going and speaking at local business groups and chamber of commerce, for example. So I would do a lot more and more consistently from the early days and not wait for permission to do it to build my visibility and become known for that thing that i said in number 1 which was being clear about how you describe yourself and then owning that and going out and being visible and talking about that consistently and becoming known in the small niche that where you want to be known whether that's a location or whether that's a particular type of client that you become recognized, you become a go-to. Oh, if you want brand strategy, you should speak to Beck Hughes. So that's my number three, embracing my personal brand. Cringy as it was at times, now it feels like the most natural thing in the world to just be me. But it was hard. Like showing pictures of myself was the cringiest thing that I could imagine. The first time I posted a picture of myself on Instagram, I probably had several sleepless nights about it. It just felt so unnatural to me. But I know with hindsight that it was the right thing to do. And I know that it became so much easier with time. And the other thing is using my own voice and my own opinions and not shying away from sharing those things. Number four on my hit list, (laughs) my to-do list, on my imaginary to-do list, but it is still in many ways my to-do list. Number four is I would intentionally... Build my network and my community. I absolutely have done that in my business, but I've probably done it more by luck, intuitively, let's say. I haven't ever sat down and written a plan to say, I will build my network and my community. And for these reasons, I will focus on these kinds of people and these are the actions I will take. It has been a big driver in my business. I know that when I sit down and reflect, but if I was starting now, I would do it in a very intentional way because I know that it's had the biggest impact. So referral is my biggest growth driver by a country mile. So probably 80% of my work, I want to say, comes from referral. So people seeing work I've done for others and then seeking me out, I would see that as a, ki- a type of referral, but more importantly, people directly recommending me. So, I've done work for them or have collaborated with them in some way. They know of me and then they refer others onto me. Huge, big, massive part of my business. So, I would embrace that and be very mindful around that particular driver. So, I would first and foremost build a strategy around referral. So, I would really encourage clients to refer, give them the tools even to refer maybe even incentivize them to refer. I would build strategic partnerships. I would really sit down and think about maybe who's the, what's the web developer? Who's the copywriter? Who are those others? What's the business coach that I could connect with to create this referral network perhaps or this strategic partnership that we can work in? And thirdly, I would network more. I would absolutely get out in An online group setting, absolutely. I would use particular business networks that are perhaps more online-based, but I would also go and do the face-to-face thing so much more, like big time. 20, 30, 40, 100 times more than I did in the early days. And maybe it was because I was, you know, I was a mum in the early days and my children were small, and perhaps it was a little bit harder for me, or maybe... I created a story that it was hard for me and I could have done it more if I'd given myself that kick up the bum perhaps. So I would absolutely spend a big portion of my, let's say, marketing headspace on building that network in that community. And part of that community building would be that I would spend a lot more time in conversation with people and engaging with others. So that was probably less... Was it less easy? Maybe not. I think in my early days, maybe Facebook groups would have been the place to do that. Now with Instagram, what I love the most about Instagram is the conversations that go on in the background about the connections in stories that I make. That's the best bit. Getting just those really genuine connections with people. I love to know about people. I love to know what makes them laugh. I'd love to know what makes them tick. I love having those really honest and genuine connections with people. So I find the back end, should we call it, of Instagram, an amazing place to do that. And that is actually how I would invest my time in social media, not on posting. That's not to say I wouldn't post content. But if I was starting now, as I currently do in my own business, I would spend my energy there creating those really gorgeous fulfilling satisfying connections and they may not even be connections that are ultimately about selling they may be those kind of strategic partnership connections or network or they just might be great people to know and connect with and make business life that little bit happier either way that's where I put a lot of time so that's my number four being really strategic about building my network and my community. So they're they're sort of two sides of the same coin. The network is perhaps the business connections, the strategic partnerships, and the community is just the people you take the time to support and have chats with and really build, in business terms, some friendships with in many ways. Number five on my top 10 countdown. (laughs) It's not really a countdown because I started probably with the first thing I would do. And this maybe this is somewhat in a bit of an order. But the fifth thing that I would focus on would be building and nurturing my email community, let's say. It's a list, but we'll say community. I, I would say relatively early on. I'm not going to say it was in the first probably, I don't know, two years or three years. But reasonably early on, I created a lead magnet or opt-in, whatever you want to call it. And I haven't really deviated from that particular piece of content that much. I might have enhanced it, added to it. I've obviously rebranded it several times. But that has really been my mainstay of a freebie that I share with people. That freebie has continued to be a really valuable piece of content. It's something that people download regularly. And what amazes me more is that people who have downloaded it can sometimes come back to me two years on. And want to start the conversation about working with me. But also people who download it really genuinely do value it. And I know that's the point. But I'm constantly surprised when people do love and value my content. Because it, that's just, you never expect that, I suppose. You, you create it with that in mind. And you hope that that's the case. But you don't necessarily take it for granted. And I remember I had a discovery call with someone perhaps about six months ago. And... She held up the lead magnet to me. It's um, 12 brand mistakes and how to avoid them or how to to fix them. And she'd printed it off. She had all these notes on it. She said, I've been using this for the past 18 months, maybe even two years. And I found it so valuable. And I always make notes and revisit it. That felt really good because she'd got some real value out of that. And even before we'd worked together, it had made a difference in her, her business and she'd been able to use it. So anyway, that's enough about my lead magnet, (laughs) but it definitely is something I would focus on from day one because having a great lead magnet doesn't just generate leads. It is also a brilliant opportunity to showcase what you know and what you can do, what your wheelhouse is, that thing I said in point one again, what you want to be known for and what you want to talk about. And it showcases your value and what impact you will have on a business. So a lead magnet isn't just about creating leads for sales, but they're important, super important. But it's also about building that confidence and that trust in your audience. So remember that too. So what I would do is I would create it from day one almost, well, maybe day five, because I've already got four things to do and that's probably one thing a day at least. And then having created it, I would promote it more intentionally. I would probably be fairly merciless in the way that I promoted it. I would use it in every particular connection that I made. So if I was doing a webinar on someone's behalf, or if I was guest guesting on their podcast, I would ask them to share that. I would ask my strategic partnerships to share it. I would share it fairly consistently in my content. So I would look at lots of ways to share that particular lead magnet. And then perhaps more important really than generating those leads, and this is something that I have been fairly poor at, let's be honest, is I would then continue to add value to the list that I had created. And I would invest much more time in connecting with those people who had come and opted into that particular lead magnet. I would continue on a regular basis to email my list, but but do it in a really great way to offer some genuine value, offer insight, but I would commit to doing it more consistently. And not even weekly. This is the thing. I think what happens is we say, I've got to email my list weekly and then that becomes too much. So we just don't do it at all. But what if you even did it monthly? Because doing it monthly is 12 connections, 12 emails in a year over going for a whole year and not doing it because it just seems too hard. So I would definitely do that. I would build my list. And on top of that, as... Well, as the opt-in, I would absolutely have a downloadable value-led proposal. Now, I talk about the value-led proposal in the Creative Value Incubator. I talk about it fairly frequently. And I would have that document, which is all about me and my services and my fees and has testimonials and addresses frequently asked questions and builds my personal brand and introduces me. I would have that as a downloadable too. And that would add people to my list. And in the same way, I would nurture those and continue to connect with them too. So that's what I'd be doing there. That's number five, build and nurture my email list. And that's probably through two things, a valuable lead magnet or opt-in and that value-led proposal. Number six, I would be honest, hand on heart. I'm sitting here with my hand on my heart and I'm crossing my fingers at the same time. I would be intentional, and consistent with my content. I would, I promise. More importantly, perhaps, consistency is important, but I think consistency is about the level of consistency you can achieve, not what people tell you. So it's not about frequency, weekly, daily, but it's about having a level of consistency that you know you can commit to, and then committing to that. When it comes to content, the first thing I would focus on is content for my audience. And really developing my messaging for them and about the outcomes that I create with my work. And not just sharing my work and having a nice online portfolio, essentially. So that's the first thing. I would think about what content I can create for my audience. I would focus on quality over quantity, absolutely. There have been times, way back when, when I just felt the pressure to continually post content for content's sake. And it never feels good, and it's not sustainable. And I would absolutely focus on long-term content. So I would put much more of my time and energy into blogs, podcasts, video content potentially, and do those things consistently, rather than putting the lion's share of my energy into posting social media content, into, you know, tiles, essentially, I would rather do one really great SEO-led blog a month than post five times a week on my Instagram, without a doubt. So I would be realistic about socials too and commit to what was achievable for me, but also what I know has the most impact. So I would, I would, again, hand on heart, fingers crossed. (laughs) I'd do reels and I'd do stories. But I would absolutely rather do one reel a week then three or four posts. Bring people to your fold with reels and build connection with them through your stories. And that's where I would put the majority of my social media energy. My content energy wouldn't all be social media. I would also be thinking about those long-term, long-hand, if you like, pieces of content, like blogs, like maybe even a podcast. And focus on doing those consistently and doing them well, quality over quantity. So that's my number six. I'd be intentional and consistent with content. But when I say content, make no mistake, I'm not just talking about posting on Instagram and (laughs) rolling that out to Facebook. Because Facebook doesn't get all the attention it used to get eight or nine years ago, does it? Now, number seven, this is a big one for me. It's a personal one. And I know it's not for everyone. But I would absolutely, from day one, make strategy, and I mean brand strategy, a central part of my offer, and I would charge for it. And I would charge handsomely for it. In the beginning, I really did shy away from it. I didn't feel like I could charge what I knew it was worth. I didn't feel even comfortable to label myself in that way, which is so strange because it's what I had done in corporate very successfully and very competently and very confidently. But going out on my own, I diverted back to focusing on the creative side, the design side. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'll probably say it again a million times. For me, brand strategy was one of the pivotal things in my business. It's where I saw my revenue explode and it's where I saw the kinds of relationships I had with my clients and the kinds of clients I attract transformed and improved vastly. And it's where I probably started to get the most satisfaction out of the work I was doing. And also felt I was getting the best and the most impactful results for my clients. If you are a creative a designer in business and you have an inkling, you know, if you're intrigued by brand strategy or if you think you you kind of do it, but you feel like you want to make it a bit more robust, please do. Because I promise you, it is such a big opportunity for brand designers. So for me, strategy it has always been you strategy. (laughs) I love you dearly. And I would make you my number one from day one. And in doing that, I would also, alongside that, really focus on positioning myself as a creative leader and being someone who does guide and direct the client, not necessarily just a brief taker. And I would invest in my consultant mindset. I would go back to everything I'd learned in agency land when I was a consultant and remind myself of what that looked like. How I needed to behave with my clients to get the best results for them and for me. And that's how I behave in my business. Number eight, I would ensure, please don't yawn when I say this, because oh my goodness, it's so important. I would ensure I had robust systems in place most specifically my legals and my financials. So I may have confessed to this in the past but I did manual invoicing for a heck of a long time. So I would create an invoice in in Illustrator if you can believe it and that's what I would send out as a PDF, and I would have a folder of all my invoices, and then I would have to run through them and double check in my bank account which ones had been paid, and then chase up the ones that hadn't been paid. And it was all exceedingly manual. And there was, re- other than having some kind of spreadsheet, and I don't mind a spreadsheet. I mean, th- this is the podcast of confessions, is it? Because as a designer, I know we're supposed to hate spreadsheets, but I actually really don't mind a spreadsheet. But It doesn't make for great reporting when you've got to manually input everything. And also, particularly when it comes to managing your expenses and understanding your profit and loss in your business. So from day one, I would get a zero account. And if I hear you say it's expensive, it's really not. It's, you know, if you're subscribing to image libraries or you've obviously got your Adobe subscription, then you're probably subscribing maybe to Zoom and you've probably got a Canva subscription then zero is no more expensive than any of those. And it is pivotal, fundamental, central to your business. If you want to take your business seriously, have the proper systems in place. I'm not saying it has to be zero, by the way. I'm, I, the <laughs> This podcast is not sponsored by zero. I use zero and I find it really easy and intuitive to use. But having a system for your financials and Hand in hand with that, working with a bookkeeper, certainly working with an accountant on an annual basis is super important. And I think a lot of money can be wasted in your business and there can be a lot of stress and heartache unnecessarily when you haven't got a robust financial system in place. Again, I talk about this in the Creative Value Incubator and part of this is about cash flow management, but also debtor management, ensuring you get paid. And you can do things like that in zero, And it's all automated and it all just happens. But using a robust financial system, having one in place, will directly impact your profitability. You will waste less money, I guarantee it. And you will improve your cash flow because you will get paid quicker. And then the other thing that I mentioned is the legals. I would sit down and i would come up with a very clear scope for each of my services and i would work with a solicitor to develop my terms and conditions for my business i think we all enter relationships thinking it won't happen to me this is a really lovely person they're not going to get difficult about paying me or some of the other things that can turn sour in a in a client relationship but it can happen and it probably happens the most when you're in a relationship you're down the track in a relationship potentially and you let your guard down or you get busy and you trust a client that well I'll do the work and then I'll quote it afterwards and they'll be fine with it and then suddenly they're not and you haven't got the you didn't have the processes and maybe you haven't got the legal terms and conditions to back you up and you haven't got the clarity of scope So having some of your legals really clearly defined that you can fall back on and you hopefully never have to fall back on. But when you do your wish that you had them, that is something that you should do from the beginning. This is not a nice to have. It's not something you, oh, when I'm two, three years in business, then I can afford to go and do my legals. You can never afford not to have proper legal protection in place the moment and i talked about this in a previous podcast with tracy from tm solicitor and we talked about legals the moment that you enter into a transaction with a client your money is exchanged for a service you are subject to consumer law and therefore you need to have the right processes and legals in place to protect you and your business As part of this, I would also set aside time for the admin. Again, particularly financials. I would set aside time every week to do my invoicing on time, chase up payments, and just really focus on that part of my business. Not make it a nice to-do that gets pushed aside and pushed aside until sometimes it all gets a bit messy and it all becomes a bit overwhelming. And as a big thing. Because I came out of agency, and in standard in agency is 30 or 60-day payment terms. And in big agencies, to some extent back then, maybe not now in the current climate, but they, their cash flow could stand that kind of essentially credit term for their clients. But as a small business owner, when you're maybe only working on one or two clients at a time, your cash flow can't sustain lending your client money for 30-plus days. So, A, be taking deposits up front, absolutely, before you start. And B, never offer terms that are more than seven days. And also get payment up front for any costs. So, if you're going out and buying anything on behalf of your client, they need to pay you before you pay. Don't leave yourself exposed to financial risk. So, that's a big one. I'd be doing that earlier on. I wouldn't be leaving that to as a nice to have when I get bigger, when I'm earning a certain amount. Number nine, I would streamline my process so much more. So I didn't automate early on in my business. So my systems were very manual and I thought I was great at managing the client. And I probably, the client probably had a great experience. In fact, I know they do based on my referrals and the fact I still work with many clients from eight or nine years ago and I still have relationships with them. But what I realized is I was reacting to them rather than managing them. But there are some things that I would do right now that over time I sort of introduced and made a big difference So with hindsight, I would do them straight away. Number one, automate meetings. I'm boring as hell about this. (laughs) I tell everyone about this. Like, show them a picture of my dog, tell them about my kids' sporting achievements, then tell them that I've automated meetings. (laughs) That's my barbecue conversation. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm not quite that boring. I also talk to them about zero. (laughs) Um, But yeah, automating meetings. One of the best things, I'm not kidding you, in a systemization sense, one of the best things I've ever done. The other thing with streamlining your process, and this is a big one, do not under any circumstances create a bespoke proposal for every single inquiry. Wow, that's such a waste of time. I have spent Oh, I don't even want to go, I wouldn't even want to think about how much time I have put into creating one-off proposals over and over again for inquiries, instead of just having that purposeful, value-led proposal that lays out my services, that has my fees, allows people to see how they can work with me. Then maybe we might make some tweaks, unlikely to be significant tweaks, Yes, we might do as we enter into the relationship, but spending time managing inquiries manually, number one, people emailing you and asking you for information. And number two, creating bespoke proposals. Don't do it. Automate that process for sure. Like I said earlier on, that is part of your email list building process, but it's also part of how you save time and how you streamline your business. It's a big one. I would also expect more of my clients in terms of what they should supply and what gateways in the process that they needed to commit to. So I would expect sign-offs. I wouldn't start until I had all the information because I have, in the interests of providing a great service and keeping the client happy, I have sometimes got into some very gray areas where the client hasn't given me all the info, but I've started it anyway, and it never pays off. It almost always adds frustration to the process for both parties. And without a shadow of a doubt, it eats into your profit. So I would be much tougher on those expectations of a client. I would have a detailed onboarding and offboarding. That's what I have now. It's a really important part of my client experience. It sets really, really clear boundaries. Everybody knows what's happening. Everyone knows what they need to do as they come into the process and as they leave the process. And I would invest in doing those things right now. And I would also have a studio management process. So I now use ClickUp. Some people use Asana. There are other tools. Monday might be another one. I personally love ClickUp and I use that to manage my capacity and manage my time. I know what I can do and what I can achieve for a client. I don't make promises I can't commit to because I know what I've got on my plate. I'm not just working through a list of things and hoping I'll get through it by the end of the week. I know what I'm doing day to day and I can make realistic commitments to my clients. So I would Bring in that system from day one. Because there's plenty of systems that you can use that are free. You don't even have to pay for that. So don't see it necessarily as a cost. But if it is a cost, it's one worth investing in. And then finally, in my top 10, number 10 is setting boundaries. Oh my goodness, this is another thing that I know I'm really boring about. But I can't help myself because it is so... It's transformational, it's essential, it's something we're horribly bad at as creatives and there are lots of things that are responsible for that around maybe our agency experience, about being people pleasers, about feeling really emotional and personally connected to our work and therefore wanting to do an amazing job and therefore allowing that to chip into our boundaries. There are hundreds of reasons why we don't uphold boundaries but it kind of has to stop. And I realized way too late that it had to stop. And I'm talking way too late. So I would be now with the beautiful benefit of hindsight, so much clearer on my boundaries. And that doesn't mean me walking around being an a-hole to everyone. That just means me being clear, communicating that well and in a friendly way to my clients and also sticking to it. So I had a client only last week. I don't work on Fridays. I probably talked about that too. And so I make it clear on my onboarding that I respond to emails Monday to Thursday within 24 hours. That's how it works when we're working together. But a client emailed me late on Friday asking for a meeting on a Monday. And I don't respond to emails on a Friday. But I felt like I really, oh, it was hard. I wanted to get back to that client but in the interests of my own sanity the fact that i was had other commitments anyway personal commitments i just made the call that i would park that and then first thing on monday i just let that client know thank you for your request i don't work on fridays and i am also not available for this meeting today <laughs> Because I wasn't, I wasn't being difficult, but I wasn't. But then I shared with her a reminder based on the onboarding that there was a link that they could go and use to book in time with me when they wanted to chat to me. Because I don't make myself unavailable. I make myself available within the parameters that work for me, which makes for a better experience for everyone. So there are times in a nice way, she's an amazing client and I love her to bits, but there are times that you need to reset. And it's almost more important with those clients who you do have that personal relationship with and you do particularly perhaps gravitate towards that you set the boundaries with them as much as the difficult clients. Because the minute that you don't reinforce those boundaries, you're not being fair to that client because you're confusing them. The next time they make a request and you don't reply, they're like, oh, what happened? Did I upset you? Because you didn't make it clear to them. You didn't manage their expectations. So, oh me, oh my. I would get really, really clear and really consistent and fairly militant, I have to say, about my boundaries. I would say no more. And I would really work on myself and my feelings of obligation and feeling like I should do things out of a sense of duty. I would, I need to work on that in myself. I would be clear about my hours, my availability, how I communicate. Again, I've mentioned it before. I don't communicate with my brand clients via um, text or via messenger on socials. We keep it to the client portal. I would be so much stricter on scope creep and nip it in the bud early. But also part of that as well in terms of setting boundaries is I would empower my clients better. Stop myself from solving problems for them and empower them to solve their own problems. Everyone's got access to Google. Everyone can watch a YouTube video. Whereas I tend to try and solve my problems for my clients. And maybe that's a bit of an ego thing for me. I'm willing to admit that. But it's not helpful in the long term. Because I can't get annoyed with my clients overstepping my boundaries when I don't make them clear and I don't reinforce them. And I would nip it in the bud early when people are wasting my time or taking advantage of my time and my knowledge. There have been clients or people who didn't end up being clients who I've spent huge amounts of time in meetings, talking them through proposals and them just wanting to pick my brains. And I've devoted a lot of time for that. And ultimately, that's my call, but I can't be resentful about it. And I have found myself being resentful at times, but I can't do that if I don't take responsibility for it. And I think about all of that time I invested and it went nowhere. I could have and should have been doing something else. Some of the other nine things on this list that I've talked about today. So some of that is quite personal. I'm not saying any of these 10 things are right for you. But what I'm saying is sometimes it can be really helpful to reflect. What would I do now? And therefore, what can I be doing now? Because it's never too late. There's no point in doing what if I wish I should have. Do it now. If you think to yourself that this is what I would do now if I was starting. Well, you can still do it now, can't you? But maybe some of these 10 things also perhaps spark a little bit of interest or inspo for you as well about how you might potentially do things if you are in the early days or if you want to shift things in your business. So just to recap, if you fast forward (laughs) to the end of this podcast, you still get it all, right? So number one, I would get really clear and create a simple focused offer for, like I said, a reasonably well-defined niche. I would get stuck into my website and also my SEO. Importantly, my website beyond my portfolio. I would embrace my personal brand, number three, and focus on how I become visible and how I become known for what I want to become known for. Number four, I would intentionally build my network and build my community. And that's probably how I would, in particular, use socials. I'd build and nurture that email list. I would be intentional and consistent. Again, hand on heart, fingers crossed. (laughs) Number six, I would be... I promise, intentional and consistent with my content. Coming in at number seven, I would make strategy a central part of my offer. Yes, I would, because you know it, I love strategy. At number eight, I would get my hands dirty, do the unpleasantness maybe. It's not unpleasant actually, it's awesome. And when it's done, it feels good. But I would get in there and get my robust systems in place, my legals, my financials. And I would throw a bit of money at it, to be honest, because protecting yourself and your business, it kind of comes before anything and everything. Number nine, I would streamline my processes, automate as much as I could, use templates, stop reinventing the wheel every time, sending out a new proposal every time someone inquired, for example. And number 10, I would really get militant about my boundaries in a lovely, nice way. You can be a nice person and have boundaries, trust me. And I would really go there with the boundaries and I would be consistent about it. So that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. As I always say, please let me know if you've listened and you took something from this or if you've got questions, because hey, if I'm wittering on over here and you're like, what is she talking about? I need some clarity. Please let me know, message me. You'll probably get me best on Instagram. So have an amazing day, my lovely. Thank you as always for lending me your ears and I hope you have a great week and I really look forward to chatting to you again super, super soon. Thank you so much for joining me, Bec Hughes on the C Word podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe, leave a review and share with your friends and business buddies who might like to listen in too. The music for this podcast is by Red Productions on Pixabay.